my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco DeLeon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Kay He. There is such a powerful allure that comes along with money. I think a lot of us believe that deep down inside, if we had more money, all of our problems would go away. And yes, lots of our problems would go away. And for many of us, the quality of our lives would improve. But I think it's important to recognize and realize that life is full of problems. And once we solve for one, it really doesn't take long for another to pop up. Of course, having more money might mean we get to have better problems than we did when we had less money. But it seems like those who end up with really any level of financial security find other things in their lives to feel insecure about. I spoke with Kay He a former Wall Street guy who made millions, but quit and started an online business. He started writing about productivity, money, lifestyle, but eventually what he found himself writing about is what post-achievement professionals deal with after they make that pile of money. Please enjoy my conversation with Kay. 
Okay, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of the Weird Finance Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you so much, Paco. It is a huge pleasure. Can't wait to do this. I want to know if you could share with our listeners a little bit of your origin story. Can you take us from growing up in NYC to who you are today? Yes, it was. I think that I always say it was it was the best of times and it was the worst of times in that, you know, I've had many different chapters in my life. But I'll start with the story growing up in New York City, 14th Street and Avenue A, East Village. And my parents are uh, immigrated from Cambodia. So they went from Cambodia to France and then United States in the early 70s. And they didn't speak the language. My dad had a job. So we were always kind of like lower, mid, lower middle class when we, when we got there. And then, you know, when, when I graduated, they're middle class. Although what does middle class in New York City even mean anymore? You know, my parents are just hardworking, sincere, genuine people that just, they wanted us on the track. They wanted us on the track of education, playing the violin, you know, being really good at math, all the cliches. <laughs> and so that we could get on the path to um, be educated, have opportunity, stability, a big thing for them, stability, because ultimately what they wanted for us is what they wanted for themselves, which was just to be happy, right? To feel safe and to be happy. And so, you know, grew up, studied, big nerd, huge nerd, Magic the Gathering type nerd, and went to Yale, studied computer science, and then went to investment banking on Wall Street, Worked on Wall Street for, for a while, 14 years, and then became an online internet personality eight and a half years ago. <laughs> okay, wait, I have a couple of questions that are <laughs> piquing my curiosity. Why didn't your parents stay in France? So my mom's half French and they're French citizens. My dad got a, he went to college in France and he got a job offer at the United Nations. And the United Nations headquarter is in New York. And the next question people ask is always, was your dad a diplomat? My dad was not a diplomat. The, the UN is a huge employer. They have lawyers, they have accountants, they have IT personnel. And uh, my dad was an auditor for the United Nations for 35 years. Got it. And then you studied computer science, but you went into iBanking. Tell me mm -hmm. about that journey. Yep. So I went to Yale and I had a very, very specific mandate for myself at Yale, let's say. The mandate was graduate from this prestigious place and make as much fucking money as possible. <laughs> that was the mandate. That was my parent. You know, a good Asian kid. Just, you know, like we're not here for the liberal arts. Like right. we're not here to philosophize. Get that money. And so I, this was in 19, 1997 to 2001. For your younger listeners that Google didn't even <laughs> exist. Google was just an idea, a seedling of an idea back then. And computer science back then was still like, this is how you make money. I got the equivalent of a minor in economics as a backup plan. Mm -hmm. And I, it was dot-com era. And so I was actually a really shitty computer programmer. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I got a lot of A's in my life. I'm not going to lie. Computer science, tons of C's. That oh. shit's just hard. Yeah. It's hard, it's competitive. I was not cut out for that, for that blood sport. 
And so I tried to get a job at Microsoft and Sun Microsoft, a lot of companies that don't exist anymore. Microsoft being the, the most prominent one, I couldn't get one. And the banks would come in. This was like a Wall Street was booming and it was going to continue to boom. The banks came in, they said, give us your smartest, give us your brightest, give us your more ambitious. We don't give a fuck what they majored in. We're just going to throw some money at them. And so funny thing about going on Wall Street is that I didn't grow up with parents that even knew what Wall Street was. My dad is still, my dad's 76. He's still scared of buying stocks. Huh. It's a very scary. So we didn't grow up with that, you know, like you get around the table and you trade stock ideas and you're like, why do you think the market went up, Sonny? <laughs> like none of that in our, in our, in our household. It's like, how, how'd you do on your test? And so I didn't really, like I knew you could make money in finance, but I didn't know what Wall Street was. And so when these banks came, I had to study and be like, what's an investment banker? What's a sales trader? What's, this was before even hedge funds were prominent. And so I studied up on what was investment banking because I literally didn't know. And then I got a job at a second tier investment bank because I wasn't a star Wall Street, a star Yale student. And then the rest was history, I guess. <laughs> okay, so I think just by hearing you talk a little bit, I'm trying, I'm sort of piecing together how, like who money was as the character in your childhood. Mm, yeah. But, you know, secure the bag seems to be the the main theme there. Do you want to add anything in terms of money, the character in your in your upbringing? I think that money was definitely safety. It was also, I didn't have the language back then, but I think it was kind of status and power. And what I mean by power was, I think as a child of immigrants, you know, my parents, they, they, they have a small presence in that, like in a room, they're very shy and, and quiet. And I inherited that trait from them, how I became an internet personality, who the fuck knows, but I inherited that trait. So very, I ver it was very small always. And so I thought that money could make me feel bigger, right? So that was, that was another one. And let's, let's just call a spade a spade. Like I wanted to, I wanted to get girls <laughs> and I couldn't growing up. I was always relegated an instant friend zone. Like, why would you want to go out with Kay? He's such a good friend, you know, like he's so sweet. And I was like, no, fuck that. <laughs> I want, I want like dates. I want to get on the bases, but I couldn't. And so I thought that if I had more money and power and status, then I could, it would be easier. So was your hypothesis true? Ooh. What a damn good question. A big change for me was when I got to college, I was extremely skinny. I'm still a very slim guy. But when I got to college, I was extremely skinny. My friends joke, they're like, you didn't have shoulders. <laughs> you know, you were just like all neck. And so when I got to college, I realized I, I started to work out. And I had some friends, these like athlete types. And we're going to go to the gym. I think we worked out two and a half hours a day. Like, why do you go to Yale to work out? And I took supplements and I would do like the crazy stuff, like eat like six, like 
12 egg whites, eight egg whites, you know, hundred grams of protein, that kind of stuff. And I put on like 35 pounds of muscle in a year. That's a lot. It's a lot. Percentage wise too? <laughs> Percentage wise, not as much because, you know, neck boy, but that changed the way that I saw myself. Interesting. And it changed the way, and, and I don't know, is it cause and effect? Like if you see the, if you change the way you see yourself, do other people change the way that they see you or do they just see the changed version of you, right? Like, like I was like, women were attracted to me and they weren't before. Got it. And so was it because I was project, like now as a 44 year old, I was like, it's probably because you're projecting confidence. But as a 19 year old, I'm like, oh, it's because you gained 35 pounds of muscle. So it could be both. It's probably both. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's probably both. I think it's a lot of things too. Just the freedom of, of college and just like a, a new, a new chapter discovering alcohol. Like I think it just like released a lot of inhibition, got me out of my head, maybe take more risks. I think it was a confluence of events, but I really do think that, you know, I think I was so attached and terrified of that identity of being like a skinny nerd. And remember in 1996, nerds were not cool like they are today. Like nerds were nerds. And so I think that that, that was definitely like the thing that I felt the most, because I didn't really get the money and the status and the power for like another half a decade or so, another like five, seven, seven years, right? I was still 19 years old with no money um, sure. when, when that change happened. You want me to talk about projecting a little longer to continue to answer your question if, if it played out? Well, I, I think I want to know if when you finally got the money, did you feel mm -hmm. like, you know, the thing about money, mm -hmm. well, there's lots of things about money, but we, we like imbue it with our own ideas of what the money will then do for us. Mm -hmm. When I, you know, you talk about this a lot in your writing, the when then problem, I think is what you call it. But when I get this money, then I will be yeah. insert whatever here. And you made a lot of money and you mm -hmm. had these ideas about money. You were driven to get the money. So when you got the money yeah. and then, okay, the interesting part of the story, everybody, I'm the spoiler alert is he left the money, yep. right? So that's mm -hmm. the interesting wrinkle in your story. When you got the money, did you feel then powerful and you had status and you were seen and you were big? So the interesting thing about that question is that there's not a, it's not a singular moment, hmm. right? So you could think of like the largest paycheck I ever got, like after taxes, like one day, like a million dollars showed up in my bank account. That's crazy. That is... It's like mind blowing, like W2. Yeah. Wow. And I was like 32. That was the most ever. But... When I graduated college, they were like, here's 10 grand. Signing bonus. To signing bonus. Mm -hmm. That's a lot so, for a college. So 10 kid. grand. Yeah. So 10 grand as a 21 year old. And like, I know that this is very from a like very pos position of, of privilege. 10 grand as a 21 year old feels better than a million dollars as a 31 year old. Whoa, bro. Like feeling in yeah. terms of how you feel. I believe it, but that it bums me out a little bit. Okay. Not that I'm like expecting a million dollars post tax <laughs> to hit my account anytime soon, yeah. but just knowing that probably I'm on the other side of that. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's, and with you think you can think about it, right? Think about it with your, with the car, right? Maybe that example is not relatable, but the beater car that you got as a 16 year old that represented freedom 
is worth so much more than the $100,000 Tesla that you might get in your 30s. I mean, that's the extreme. I think there's a lot of gradation happening Hmm. in between the beater and then being the person that can afford, that can truly afford that car, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because then, yeah, you're talking about a different, you're, you're talking about a different stratosphere. You're talking about going from like, I don't know if it's survival, but certainly not thriving to having mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of disposable income. Yeah, no, and and I I, I totally I, I I'm with you there. It's like it's like this. It it's because you have to think about it relative to where like where you are in your life, right? right? So so many people like I, I often think of I often think about how much would you pay to go back to being 21 years old, right? And some people would say, I never want to do that. And others would be like, I pay like 200 grand, like, because they feel trapped at 35, you know, two kids, they love their kids and all that, but there's no, so they might be thriving, Mm -hmm. but they have no freedom. Right. And, and being 21 is, you know, again, in some, in in my example, it was kind of the pinnacle of freedom in, in the sense that like I could, in theory, I could do whatever I want. I had enough savings. I was fortunate to graduate without any college debt. So it's just a, it's like an interesting thing because there's like the money that you get, then there's the sur- surrounding circumstances around it, right? Look, I know people that have millions of dollars that feel trapped, literally trapped because they feel trapped by their lifestyle. They feel trapped by their job. Some of them feel trapped by their spouses and kids, right? That's a bummer. But and it's the reality. <laughs> it's the reality. And, and it's not, you know, it's not one thing. There's no judgment or sympathy asking. It's just that's their reality. Right. Right. That's what they're feeling right now. And we can empathize or we can criticize or we could be like, I just, this doesn't, this doesn't concern me. And so just like it, it's, it's just an interesting, I think back to the story where there is a famous, famous private equity guy. Uh, his name's Thomas Lee, and he's famous for he did a big, huge buyout for, of Snapple in the '80s, like one of the first like big private equity deals. And he started the private equity industry. He's kind of known for that. But then all of these young guns came up behind him, and I think Thomas Lee has like two billion dollars, and the other like young guns have like a hundred billion or like fifty billion. And he's always felt. Uh, like he hasn't been seen. And at 76 years old, he shot himself in the bathroom of his office. Now, again, no one knows the details. Nothing's come out in the press of like, people are like, oh, Epstein or nothing's come out. The only thing that's come out about this is that he had always felt like, and again, causation or correlation, but he had always felt disrespected by the industry, right? So again, $2 billion, shotgun to the head. His reality, objectively, we're like, $2 billion? <laughs> like, I'm not even in the office with $2 billion. <laughs> For sure. So, so again, I just like so many different gradations there. Got a little bit off topic. But. No, no worries. No worries. I... I mean, it's interesting because you you're playing in such a different space when it comes mm-hmm. to finance and P 
people feeling okay. And yeah. I'm playing in that space too. At the end of the day, I do talk a lot about money and ultimately I want to help people just have peace. And I can't believe mm -hmm. that that is the thing, that is the cause that I am mm -hmm. championing at this point in my career. But I just feel like, yeah, a lot of people are not okay out there. And I want to talk to you about this yeah. because you do a lot of work about helping people feel okay, but you're on the other end of the spectrum. So you're probably mm -hmm. working with clients who are making millions of dollars a year, yet they mm -hmm. feel trapped by their money. And I want to know like, yeah. where is the common overlap between yeah. people who are struggling with their finances and people who have a lot? And mm -hmm. this idea, right? This trope that we have that like, you know, a lot of people now are talking about how, yeah, money does buy happiness. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, all, yeah. the, all the sassy internet memes are like, they lied to us. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, and as someone who has a good amount of money, like my life is definitely better because I have money. You know, there there are certain things that I, you know, the, the the most obvious one is that I can easily. There are many things that I can pay money for to to make problems go away, and a lot of people don't have that luxury. And there's also, there's a saying that I love to say, think about, which is money can only solve money problems. And so what are some examples of non-money, like problems that money can't solve? Like I was telling you this earlier, I've got a gnarly bald spot in the back of my head. Money can't solve that. I wish it could. It can't. Wait, you can't, you pay for some kind of hair plug or Transplant, something? Transplant, I, I you probably could, but it's you'd still it's you'd still have hair flow, you know, like everyone would still know, right? <laughs> it's not that it's not that that good that it's seamless, right? What about um, Elon Musk? He had a pretty bad receding hairline, and now it yeah. looks fine. Yeah, you know, I haven't done enough research on the topic, but even so, yes, and it, and it could be a lot of. I mean, you could be in the like fifty thousand dollar. Hundred thousand, you know, range. I have no idea. I, I don't know, but I know that the hundred dollar solutions or the thousand dollar solutions don't move the needle. Sure. Right. And so every time there's a camera around me, I get I panic because and and anyone that has some insecurity about how they look, which is most people, feels a version of this. Hmm. Now people automatically think we're like, well, you have a lot of money, so you can not feel that. Like you can, well, I can't pay to make that problem go away. We already established that. And what do I do? It's like, oh, I feel really bad about myself, but at least my bank account's really big. It, it, like it breaks down really quickly. And so if you think about the problems that money can't solve, right? It's like, I think the biggest one is people feel unworthy of love. Mm -hmm. And that's a very universal human need. And that shows up in a bazillion different ways. I've heard you cover it in some of your pod previous podcast episodes. If you feel unworthy of love, like, yeah, you could try to buy your way to love. We all kind of know how that ends up. Right? Sure. Or let's say you have very low self-esteem. Like you could buy, you could buy your way. Like, can you like fake it till you make it? Like, I guess, but you still, at the end of the day, you still know you have low, you People know, self-esteem. feel that vibe it. though. Like, you know, there was always, like I have examples of like kids from my class in grade school where you know that they weren't confident and they would do things like give candy to everybody at school. Uh, yeah, exactly. 
And you're kind of like, listen, if you just want to be my friend, like, like, let's just talk and hang out and be friends. Don't like Show up try to love. buy my friendship with these delicious, you know, green apple caramel suckers. I'll take them, but yeah. I'm sad for you, dude. Yeah, yeah. And so money can only solve. And then there's the big, there's the big kahuna, right? The big kahuna is that everything fades. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. That's the big kahuna. And no matter how much money, I mean, I look at some of these life extension folks. Oh, yeah. Like Brian Johnson. I'm like, he, he takes like 170 pills and he like tracks how many erections he has each <laughs> night. He got a fucking blood transfusion from his son. Yeah, he like, does. He says that his penis is aged 18 years old or something gnarly. Great. Like that. <laughs> I was like, yo, you still drive, you still get in a car. You know, statistically, it's more dangerous to get in a car than all the other. <laughs> and so like, I look at someone like that, hundreds of millions of dollars. And again, I don't, I don't know. It's just what I see on the outside. Maybe I'm projecting my own stuff at him. That's very possible. I'm like, is this person free? Right. Is this, is this person at peace? Does this person love well? Is this person able to show love? Is this person able to receive love? I, again, I don't know. But from what I see, when I look at wealthy people, do they like do they check off those categories? Um, oftentimes, the answer is no. And so, like, it's like, well, what's the point of your wealth if you if you cannot? And it's because money can't can only solve money problems. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Kate. I want to talk a bit about your career and some of the decisions yeah. that you've made. Because it is fascinating, like you grasp the brass ring pretty quickly. At a young age, you were one of the youngest, if not the youngest, to become a managing. One of the. Okay, one of the to make managing director at BlackRock. Is that correct? Right, That's correct. Okay, good. And by thirty-five, you quit. Mm -hmm. And was it hard to walk away from making a bunch of money? And also, like, what was the cost-benefit analysis that you weighed to make this decision? To completely blow up your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's hard, you know, and, and again, to, to share the facts is like when I was leaving, it was a regular seven figure cash, like cash salary. And so on one side, I've always been a very diligent person who always lived well, be, <clears throat> well below their means. So I had saved a lot and a very aggressive investor. I'm a very, I am like, when, like, when the world feels like it's falling, falling apart, I put, I take every single saving, I like throw it into the stock market. I, I'm, I can zig when people zag and I never sell ever. So I've, I've started investing when I was 16, I'm 44 and I've never sold a share. And I do like, I take dividends, I, I use margin. I do like some financial engineering stuff, but I've never sold a share. So high income, high discipline with investing, low expenses, it gave me a great buffer. It gave me a great buffer, but I have a problem. And my problem is I could live, move to rural America, like a small town, and I, could, I never would have to work again. My problem is I like fancy hotels. I like going out to dinner with my friends. I like buying rounds of, I haven't drank in a while, but buying rounds of drinks. I like really nice sneakers. Um, all my t-shirts are $68. So like once I find the perfect t-shirt, so I, I like nice things and I like living in coasts. 
So I like high cost of living places. I would never in a million years move to somewhere for tax reasons. If it goes against everything I stand for, like I want to live my life. Like as I'm clear, my wife and I are very clear about what brings us happiness and we're clear on what doesn't bring us happiness. And so we lean into that hard. So that was my problem. So I had to, I had to keep working, but I had this savings. It is hard to walk away from that because, the, and, and on top of that, Wall Street is, I think people don't fully appreciate this if you're not in the weeds, but like a job on Wall Street is so much better than a job at Google. Like you work harder. But okay. just the amount of like income wise, okay, yeah, like like the amount of money that you can make on Wall Street relative to even Google, Facebook, is magnitudes hmm. higher. Even with getting like uh, stock, stock options. options? Well, stock hmm. options today at Facebook versus stock options ten years ago, absolutely. Okay, stock options today at Facebook, you're going to look at a stock that you know goes up 15 percent a year. But if you were looking at Google 10 years ago, you were making a start or Facebook 10 years ago, you were making a startup bet, like you were betting on something. Sure. sure. So if you adjust for like mature tech, like, yeah, if you want to go take a bet, but I would put that more in like a VC type category or like, oh, I'm going to forego some income to get that real pop when they go public or things like that. So you're walking away from, from, from a lot, but um, and that's scary. And then on top of that, my wife is an artist, so we don't have access to healthcare. We have to go through the exchanges and all of that stuff. So that that was scary. But a few things made it not scary. The first was I could always go back. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I wasn't you know like cursing people down. off. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't burning the ship. I mean, I was burning the ships in that I quit. But I wasn't burning the ships in terms of the relationships that I had built over a 15-year career. So I could always go back where, again, this is something we might want to prod on. There's like a lot of, sh- like if I had gone back, it would have been a huge ego hit. Like, oh, I screwed up. I made the wrong decision. Sure. And that's why a lot of people don't leave. That Again, it's like money can only solve money. But like the shame of going back to your ex-colleagues and being like, guys, I fucked up. Yeah, you're going to look like... Prevents a, people from leaving. Yeah, you don't want to look like that. a dum-dum. <laughs> you don't want to look like a dum-dum. So are you going to stay in a job that... And on top of that, a job that pays really well. So, but the biggest thing for me is that I was just... I was just dead inside. Really? Yeah, it was just... I was I was bored. Hmm. I have such a creative... You and I bond over our creative spirit. And it was just like, make this spreadsheet better. <laughs> You know, so I, I was bored. I had no creative, uh, I had no creative outlet. It's still a pretty demanding job mm-hmm. in that, you know, 60 hours a week, you know, you, it's like a kind of one of those jobs where you're, you're always thinking about it. And now I'm an entrepreneur. So I'm always thinking about my job in a different way, but at least it's mine. Sure. Right. And, and, and there I can manage my mindset and be like, you really have to worry about this. Okay. There, like you, you had to worry because it's like 17 people that cared about your deliverables and stuff. A, a big one is I realize now is that it was an in, it is an in, it, an industry of very insecure, mostly men. And when you put very who were like me, nerds, like skinny ass nerds that just wanted a date in high school, and when you put them in this industry 
and you give them a lot of fucking money and a lot of status and therefore a lot of power, it brings out a really shitty side of human nature. And I saw it and I just, I was like, I, I opt out. I just, I don't want to be a part of this shitty side of human nature if I have a choice. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, we've all, a lot of people have probably seen like Wolf of Wall Street. We can imagine yeah. what those, you know, what it was like. But I'd like to hear it in your own words, like what mm -hmm. that means, the shitty side of human nature. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's extremely like patriarchal, sexist, misogynist. So it's just a very, like the people in power, which are like white and to a lesser extent, Asian men are really gatekeeping power. And so, you know, the incentives are built to, to, to preserve that. A lot of the diversity, it's all just for PR, right? It's like there's not like a genuine interest in making the industry more diverse. I think that it breeds a lot of, it really breeds a zero-sum thinking environment. So, for example, the way it works is like, let's say you were in a group, we were in the hedge fund group at BlackRock. At the, at the end of the year, they take the hedge fund group, they look at all the money we generated and they say like 20% of that goes to bonuses. And then it gets divided amongst, you know, thousands, hundreds of employees. So because every, because they believe that that pie is fixed and it, it is fixed that year, people will literally make shit up. Like it's the most political backstabbing environment. I'll give you an example. I was in my, in my review and someone said to me, like, hey, you're doing a great job. I was a kind of top performer there. But we think you spend too much time training your team. So someone was like trying to criticize me by saying he's like not using his time well. Look at him training his team. The same person that said that was trying to poach my team. So and that's like a kind of innocuous example. Another one was one of my top employees wanted to go to business school and the team didn't want to lose him because he was top. And I always had a rule in business school. I was like, I'll, sh I'll do a pros and cons analysis with you, but you decide. Because I always thought like, I treat you as a human first and then as an employee second. And people, everyone else had it reversed. You're an employee first and you're a human never. <laughs> and so I would encourage people to go to business school and people get so mad at me. They're like, why are you encouraging your, our stars to leave? I'm like, because I view this role as like, I view myself as a, parental influence of sorts, where it's like, I want you to thrive in your life. And if that means being here, great. But I'm not going to fucking tell you how to live your life because it suits my interest. Right. Yeah. These are like mild examples, but th that was like, there was just so much of that every day. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? 
You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers, that is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think what is really curious to me is that you seemed to have abstained from being infatuated with spending money like an asshole. And I mean, mm-hmm. even though you say you like nice things, like, yeah, I like nice hotels too. and Nice t-shirts. Nice, I do like nice t-shirts as well. But how did you fortify yourself against, you know, not being taken with this culture of, of spending money like an asshole. And I think you know what I'm talking about. You probably saw Mm -hmm. it. And that's probably what's really trapped a lot of people in high paying jobs, even though they're miserable. Am I wrong in this assertion? So you're referring to lifestyle creep in, in, in some, to some extent, you know, I feel really, I have an amazing life partner, my wife, Lisa, and she's the yin to my yang. And we just know, like, we're just on the same page about money. And so, for example, like, yeah, we like nice stuff. A lot of the money we spend is like trainers and nutritionists and that kind of stuff. And like my t-shirts. But if you look at our couches, 
they have like pizza stains <laughs> and they're just, they're always going to have pizza stains. We're, we're like, we're kind of embarrassed to have people in our neighborhood, in our house, because we just don't care about like our furniture. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of embarrassing that we have our couches from before, literally the like when we got married from our registry, or I guess you don't put couches on a registry, but we have the couches we've had for 12 years that have survived two young kids that have Cheetos marks everywhere. And we're just like, the couch is comfortable. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, like my friend texted me the other day. He's like, I have a, he's a partner at a consulting firm. He's like, I just found a hundred thousand dollars in a, in an account. He's like, what should I do with it? And so I gave him some options and he's like, you know what? It's probably going to end up in the remodel. Like we're end- we're going to like refence the house. He's like, you're so lucky you rent. And I'm like, well, like- you're the one who found a hundred thousand dollars and I'm the one that's lucky I rent. Like, where's this math broken? Huh? Right. Yeah. And so I think having an amazing partner, I think too, that, I, you know, I had, a lot of financial success at a very young age. And I think God blessed me with this like self-awareness gene. And I was, and so like, I, I got all this money and I'm like, okay, I'm going to like, uh, you know, back then it was diesel jeans. Like, you know, they're like $200 jeans in the nineties or like early two thousands. I'm going to buy like two pairs of diesel jeans. I'm like, yeah, these are nice, but that whatever that feeling was like now it's like i know whatever i buy is not going to make my bald spot go away it's not going to make the fact that i'm a prisoner to it go away sure right like yeah. no, i could buy a fucking lamborghini and i'm still going to be ashamed about you know how the back of my head looks right and so i think i got little tastes of that and i again i, I think it's an act of god I'm, I'm not really like an act of grace that Someone's like, yeah, like you got this amazing thing. You tried it out. It was nice, but not for you. You it didn't like move the base. I think what I realized is like it didn't move the baseline of my happiness. Like it moved it up a little bit. Like tripling my income didn't triple my 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 it, my happiness increased by like ten percent, but my income tripled. So then I was like, huh. And the other thing, because you and I have talked about drinking and addiction and all that. The other thing that I realized was that it's like the first time you you drink, you you get drunk on like one drink mm-hmm. or two drinks. The one thousandth time you get drunk, you need like twelve. Yeah, and even then, the high is not as good as that first time. Yep. So it's the same. Like I I got to experience that firsthand where I'm like wait a minute, I need more of the thing, buying something, buying some experience, whatever, just to maintain. And I was like, this is broken. Yeah. And I feel really, really lucky. Look, I know there's so much like, there's so much privilege coming out here. I feel really lucky that I got to experience those things. And then I just said, look, I'm out. Like, and don't get me wrong, I get, I make 10% as an entrepreneur of what, what I made as a 31-year-old. I'm 44, 10%. Look, the numbers was high. So 10% of a high number is still a high number. Sure. Um, but, and yeah, I, I beat myself up sometimes. I'm like, oh my God, if you had, like, you, like, have you get excited. Off? Yeah, oh, all the time. All the, and because a lot of my friends are still in that world. Right. Right? So we were going to go to a bachelor party in Munich for three days. And I'm in a middle seat coach 
and they're flying business. My ticket's 2000, theirs is 16. Wow. wow. And I'm like, fuck, how on earth, oh, duh, you make, you know, seven figures a year. Like you can pay 16,000. And, and I'm like, well, I'm on, I'm on coach. But then I'm like, I live like my, my, this is the same friend. He, he texted me. He's like, Hey, I woke up at Big Bear this morning at four. I dropped my kids off at school in LA at 7 30. I went to LAX to a flew to a meeting in, I forget where, San Francisco. I was there by two. I did the meeting at two. I'm going to come back and I'll be home at 10 PM. I'm like, okay, like have your $16,000 business <laughs> class. Like you want to hear my day? I went to yoga. I worked three hours. I surfed. And I had dinner with my kids and I went to bed like a baby sucking my thumb at 9.30. Like, <laughs> you know, but again, like we're, we're comparing characters, right? And, and we always know what we don't, what we don't have hurts. Like that's human nature, right? And so much of the, 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 the practice that I've been trying to, the practices that I'm trying to adopt is to really um, break free from that. And I'll tell you something that, you know, I left the money game, but I did something sneaky. This is how sneaky the brain is. I left the money game, but all I did was I swapped it for the fame game. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm serious. And so I'm like, I don't money. Psh, I'm, I'm good. I don't need that. I could live on this and that and savings. I'm like, but I, I need those likes. I need those sweet, followers. Sweet likes. The sweet, sweet, yeah, the sweet, sweet retweets. Like I need those retweets. And I'm telling you, it's you know that game, right? It, it's that game too. Is a lot of it is trying to fill a void, totally. Right? And yeah. so money filled the void, and then I'm like, oh, okay, it didn't fill the void the way I thought I wanted it to to fill the void. So let me try this other game. Maybe like followers will fill the void. And then, you know, eight years into this online game, I'm like followers aren't going to solve the void. Yeah. I feel like so, it makes it worse, actually, the followers. It, it, it's, it's crazy. You know, it, yeah, it's, it's so weird. Like going viral. I don't go viral often because I'm not that kind of writer. But the few times I, everyone wants to go viral. That's when you get all the magic happens. I go viral and then all of a sudden I get attacked. Yeah. Because when you go viral, that's when all the trolls come out. That's part of going viral. That's yeah. part of why you go it's viral. Part and parcel. Exactly. Yes. You can only go viral when a fraction of those people are so irate. So, mm -hmm. and they're so activated and upset that they then share it. And then, just by pure statistics, some of those people are going to continue the anger and some of those people are going to like you. And yeah. so, it it's the bitter with the sweet. You get people who are, they're resonating with what you're saying, but. And oftentimes the reason why you're going viral is because it's this one little thing that's completely lacking context. And depending yep. on where you said it and who you said it with, you know, what platform it, you know, what media source it is. Yeah, it's a tricky, it's a weird game. It's one, yeah. I mean, I didn't necessarily think it all the way through. I'm going to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like, oh. <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> I was mostly in, in earnest and honestness, I was, I was doing what, you know, like quote unquote content marketing. And, mm -hmm. and I think with that now, there's been these opportunities, right? A door or a window to do a thing that is, you know, supposed to be amplified to, from a pedestal, right? Doing something like publishing a book with Penguin is 
okay, it's my message, yeah. but it's being published from a platform now. Podcast with iHeart, it's the same thing. But now I'm starting to see the other side of like, oh, okay, like now I'm beholden. I'm beholden to corporate overlords. I'm beholden to trying to captivate and monetize other people's attention and monetizing a parasocial relationship with me. It's, I'm, you know, what are, I don't even know what episode number this is going to be, but this is less than 52 episodes in. And I will say that these are some of the insights that I'm yeah. coming to. And it's a really, I want to say tricky. It's, it's wonderful to have an opportunity to help people. But it's kind of like with money where you think, okay, this is how it's going to feel. I was just going to say that. And then you get there and you're like, yeah, I feel some things. Yeah. Some of that. And it's really, look, it's it's hard because I know some people will be listening and they're like, oh, easy for you to say. Two successful entrepreneurs. You got tons of followers and this. And 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 look, I I, I do think that I had to learn a lot of this on like I had to go viral to realize how shitty a feeling it is, right? Like you could read, if someone was like, when you go viral, it's going to feel really shitty. I'll be like, go fuck yourself. You know, you're such, you're so pretentious. Stop patronizing me. And then you go viral and I'm like, I, like there are times when I've gone viral, I've just logged out of my accounts for two days. I'm like, I can't see this anger that's directed towards me. It's like, I am way too sensitive for that. And so, you know, Jim Carrey has this quote, it's like, everyone wants to be rich and famous until they're rich and famous. And like, look, if you want to be rich and famous and you heard that quote, you're not going to stop. It's not going to stop you. Like, let's be honest. But what I will say, and this is, I mean, this is why you and I connect so well at so many levels, is that what I hope that people can take away from my story is that at every juncture, whether it was that first bonus or that huge bonus, it was always a moment to go in, right? Like, how am I feeling? Like, am I, am, I, am I really happy? Am I satisfied with my life? Am I present, right? Like, I know people who have so much money, they're, never, they're literally like shells. They, they're not present. I'm like, well, if you're not present, you do not have the capacity to love well, right? Full stop. And so, great, you have all this money, but you have an incapacity to love because you're never present, right? And so what I, it's, it's like, look, if I could take, if I can show people what's ahead with the truth, like the good, like there's a lot of good, like, look, like being invited on podcasts feels great. Like getting nice emails from readers feels amazing. Like passive income when it comes, like affiliate fees feel good. But at the same time, I hope to communicate to people that there are there are voids that I have in me. And I honestly, I don't even know where some of them come from because I had a very normal upbringing, right? There are voids. I have a fear of death. I fear unlovable. Like I, I crave validation. I crave. The other day I, I, I was in one of my meditations, I'm like, okay, for you to truly be free, you need to stop seeking validation. And like, I, I know that I can't. Today, I know that I can't. I'm unable to stop seeking validation. And I need it in the smallest ways, like people saying thank you or this was helpful. And I need it in big ways. Like I sent an email newsletter to 50,000 people and I like to see that open rate, right? The, the, for me to truly be free, 
I need to let go of that. And I don't think it's a binary thing. I think I'll like one finger will let go, two fingers will let go, three fingers, and then the whole hand lets go. And you're like, oh, like, oh, you, you, you didn't, you, you didn't care about that. You don't care about it as much as you did. Do you think that you can stay in the kind of career that you're in that is dependent on an audience Mm. and not seek the validation? I have been thinking a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about this question. And I have, so I have high followers on some channels and low followers on um, basically high followers on email and Twitter and low everywhere else. It's an interesting thing because Twitter is kind of a hellhole right now. So it's like, great, I have the most followers in the most shitty platform out there. Like, <laughs> again, like, you know, you think you got it. And then, <laughs> hello, knock, knock. <laughs> Look, I've been doing this for eight years. I make enough money to cover my living expenses. And I have savings from before. So like financially, I'm good. I think that what I'm really, I, I think that I got into this because I wanted to be an artist. And then somewhere along the way, I became a businessman first and an artist second. And now I would like to go back to being an artist first and a businessman second. And so that's going to mean some, that's going to mean, that's going to have some downstream repercussions. So it means that I'm just not going to play a lot of online games. So like, I mean, I never danced to a Drake video on TikTok, but I'm not going to do my version of that, which would be like... Nine ways to wake, nine ways to kill the day so you can 10x your productivity while and like everyone else dies, right? And, <laughs> and you're like, drink a lot of water. Like, I know how to write that. This is the hard thing is that I know how to do that. So there's like an abstinence yeah. there. And then on top of it, like, I've been tweeting a lot of stuff about like parenthood and things that are just not things that I care a lot about, but they're not these like, like punchy internet topics, and they just fall on deaf ears. I feel right. And if I wrote a thing that it was like, this is how you 99% of people win the day by doing these three things, they would, that would crush. And I know how to write that. And I have the audience that will receive it. So there's an acceptance and it goes back to the validation, right? If I write something, a productivity porn article, I'm going to get tons of validation. If I write some like abstract thing on like being a dad, like it will get six likes, but that's the thing I want to write. And so I'm really, it's uncomfortable because I'm kind of, everyone's going swimming in one direction. And I'm, I'm like, yo, I'm just going to be me on the internet. And I I probably lose followers. I'm definitely make less money because I'm not gaming things, but I will live closer to alignment and, and I think that there is, I think I'll make plenty of money. I think that's the other thing is like when people see other people living in alignment, that's actually great marketing. Hmm. And, and I think that's benefited me over the years is I, I do think people, owe, one of the nicest compliments is, you know, I meet a lot of my followers in person. And when they meet me in person, they're like, you're, you sound just like the way you write. <laughs> you sound exactly like you are on a podcast. To me, that's huge because I'm not wearing a mask. That means I haven't been wearing a mask. But I know, again, you only you know the truth. Like, I know I've been wearing a mask a lot of times. 
And I've been like, really like want to pull back those masks. So that's kind of where my head's at, at now. And it's scary. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. There's this interesting phenomenon that I've been watching play out and it's mm -hmm. finance people who are wealthy being very vocal about like buying a home is not as great mm -hmm. as 
we all think it is or, mm-hmm. you know, reasons why renting is not bad for you financially, right? Because the trope that we've heard a lot was renting was throwing away money. So when I mm-hmm. look at a guy like you who has, mm-hmm. you know, you could buy a home if you wanted to buy a home, but you choose not to. You choose to pay rent in high rent cities. Mm-hmm. Yep. What's the rationale behind that? Yeah. Ooh, God, this is this is such a good question. And so come for the money, stay for the existential. This is what I love about this question is that it's actually, it's, it's, it's a finance question really, but it's how well do you understand your preferences? That's what it is. Because there's no right or wrong answer, right? And, and to be fair, if you knew that you were going to stay in the same place for seven, 10, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the number is, years, you were like a high confidence and you knew you could support your mortgage payment, like you could withstand shocks. So renting is, you have leverage, like you have leverage. They call it a leverage buyout for ordinary people. Like you have five times leverage on a very large purchase with, a, with what in the past has been the low interest rate and tax deductibility. That's basically how private equity works. So could you say like that using you different words? Okay. Yes. Sorry. So, so leverage means you borrow money to buy an asset. So let's say a, a home is a million dollars. You would, you only need $200,000 to buy the home. Only. Right. Only. And then you borrow 800,000. Right. So what happens is if that home goes up by 10%, your net worth doesn't go up by 10%. It goes up by 50% because you only put down $200,000, right? So that's the power of leverage, right? Because think about it. If I'll go slowly and feel free to edit or, 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 or slow me down. If you bought a million dollar home and it goes up by 10%, you have made $100,000 of profit, right? Right. But you only put down $200,000 of cash. Okay right? Because you, you borrowed the rest. So you make you made $100,000 on $200,000 of investment. Got That's it. That's 50%. Right. So people are like, oh, my home, home prices go up by 10% a year. If you're borrowing money, you have to, let's just say everyone puts down 20%. That means that for every percentage the housing market goes up, it, it goes up five times that amount. Got it. Wow. That's why so much wealth is in people's homes. Right. There's no other investment that you can make as a, like a a ordinary person where you could, like, if you wanted to buy Microsoft stock for a thousand dollars, you can't put down $200 to get a thousand dollars of Microsoft stock. Right. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. So it's the only way you can do that. And, And we can get into the details of it, but it's also very safe. Meaning even if your home, let's say you bought a million dollar home and the home, let's say aliens attack the entire neighborhood. <laughs> okay. Except your home. Okay. Maybe your home's worth a dollar because they destroy the neighborhood. If you can still pay your mortgage, the bank can't take your house. Right. Even if it knows it's worth a dollar. That's a really powerful form of borrowing. Again, usually only reserved for very sophisticated investors. Okay, but Kate, what you're illustrating to me is that I should buy a house. So, so again, I think that 
there's a very strong argument for buying a house if you're willing to live in that place for like seven to 10 years, because there's a lot of costs that, that go into, into that. And keep in mind, we're also leaving an environment of really low interest rates and really fast rising home prices. So it was like a Goldilocks economy for like for housing. So that might change going forward. But here's the other thing. So here's, I don't know, a lot of people don't know where they're going to be in seven years or 10 years, right? Like in seven years, my eldest daughter will be close to college, right? Like what would have happened if, you know, what if I bought a house thinking I could work from home and then everyone got called back to the office, right? Sure. So that's the thing is that selling a house is expensive and selling a house shortly after you bought it is really expensive because that leverage thing we described, it works the other way too. Got it. When you pay 6%, it's six times five because you're paying 6% on the million, not on the 200 that you put in. So it works both ways. So if you have time on your side, if you have time on your side and low interest rates, it's a, it's a no-brainer and you know you want to stay there. But let's go back to my point. It really is like, what are your preferences, right? And so some people's preference is they want to know that it's theirs. Right. Right. My preference is if my life situation changes, I want to know that I can change with it. <laughs> so like if I get, if my business gets tanked, I want to know that I can downsize. And if my business does well, I want to know that I can move closer to the beach. <laughs> you, or let's say we accidentally, we're not trying to have a third. Let's say we accidentally have a third. Like, yeah. oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> seven years, clock's ticking, right? You got to wait seven years. So you, you know that a lot can happen in seven to 10 years. You can have more kids than you thought. You can lose a family member. You can get laid off. The, the, uh, the, Job market you thought you entered in could change radically. You could live in a place that's now threatened by wildfires. Like, you know, like, right. So, again, you could sell, but the minute you sell, like in that lower window, that, that, that powerful gain works, it slaps you in the face, like in the other direction. So, I definitely intellectually grasp this, but I think what's really hard for me and possibly hard for a lot of other people is mm -hmm. that like lizard part of your brain that feels like if I have this, then I'm safe mm -hmm. and I'm secure, yeah. even if that's an illusion. Yeah, that's an interesting, I mean, in some, you don't have it because if you have a mortgage, the bank owns that's it. That's true. Right, so you gotta pay that mortgage payment. You don't pay that mortgage payment. The, you don't have it. You know, right. the eviction, <laughs> what they, the eviction police. <laughs> yeah, the, they're kicking your tire, you know. So the bank owns it because remember, 80% of the money that went towards it is the bank's money. It's not your money. So that'd be the first thing to remember. The second thing to remember too is that especially as home prices start getting higher and higher and higher, that 20% down payment is a huge amount of cash. Right. And by the way, that 20%, like if you rent, you don't have to pay that 20%. 
So let, again, we're just using the million dollar house example. You you have this extra $200,000. You can go invest it in the stock. So it's not like burning a hole in your pocket, right? So you can go you can go invest it and you can you can do lots of stuff. You can start businesses with it. You you know, you, you can do you could spend it, right? And it's a buffer, right? If you think of that 20%, like you could do the math, but that's probably like six years of rent for yeah. the equivalent home that you were going to buy. Right. Okay. I'm with you. Right? I'm totally with you because... Yeah, but the lizard brain part, right? Is, well, and I think it's because like what you mentioned earlier, of like when you don't have it and other people have it, then you want it, right? Mm -hmm. you, you like compare, but we've been in a very low rent spot for many years. It's allowed me to start my own business. It's allowed my wife to start her own business. It's allowed me to take risks. Like, should I divert a bunch of time and do a podcast and write a book? And since we don't pay a lot in rent, we do, we are able to truly invest the difference. And I think, yeah. you know, it's kind of only in the recent handful of years that I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, whoa, look mm -hmm. at all those dividends. Finally, that's nice. Yeah. And when I do, you're right. Cause when I do think like, are we going to try to do this? Are we going to like jump into this frightening, yeah. tremendously huge debt? Mm -hmm. I am like, this flexibility is pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the burning rent thing is the burning money thing is it's a little, people don't realize that when you have a mortgage, it's like, 80% of your, I forget the number, 70%, like a really large percentage of the money you're paying is just interest. By the definition of burning, you're burning a lot of money on interest. But here's the thing that I think, this is why I think that buying is a very good thing for a lot of people. So we talked about the leverage thing. The other thing is that it's, it's two things. It's forced savings. Uh, and a lot of people just, don't have the discipline to just invest in the stock market. So it's forced saving, but I think it's something even bigger than that. And, you know, you can go look at your house on Zillow and be like, oh, my house is down 2% or it's on 4%. But like, it's still this like really abstract concept because you couldn't really sell it. And there's all these fees and it's just really complicated. So you're like, like if your house was down 20%, like, do you think a lot of people would really like live their lives different? Like assuming they could pay their mortgage, they would live their lives exactly the same way. They might not even, they probably wouldn't even know unless they like read the Wall Street Journal regularly. If your stock portfolio is down 20% and you like go in and you see that red and you're like, oh, the, you know, 500,000 is now worth 400. You freak the, like 98% of people freak the fuck out and they're going to make the worst possible decision at the worst possible time. And so I think one of the really powerful things about buying a house is that it actually removes you from your worst investing instincts. And why is the majority of American wealth captured in Americans' homes? Because you have been removed from your own worst instincts. And that's a real, we can't, we cannot underestimate that. And I feel very, I think I'm unique, even amongst my finance friends. They're like, how do you not sell? Do you, don't you ever get scared? I'm like, no, just, just, it's just a number. Like to me, the number goes up, down. Like it's like, I'm emotionally disconnected from that number. And so, so I, I don't need that forced savings. I don't need to be protected 
from my worst instincts when it comes to money. For, for again, God's grace, I'm good there. Most people are not. And so I think that's the, that's the reason. But I give you some, some there's some other things. I mean, if, if we go to some of the, the nitty grittier side of things, you know, Rabit, the people always talk about phantom costs. Right. And the phantom costs are, are huge, right? There's something too about, like when you're a renter, you don't want to customize your house because you're like, oh, I might have to move in three years. But if you're like, this shit's mine forever, you're like, interior designer, come on in. Like, I hear these estimates of interior designers. You guys are batshit crazy. You know, right? They're like, yeah, but we're going to live here forever. And look, most of them will live, live there forever. But it's almost like going to Costco where it's like, it's like, I just want one coconut water. Like, no, you have to take 40. <laughs> and like, no, I just want one. And they're like, no, you have to take 40. Like, well, I guess I'm going to drink all 40 someday. Eventually, yeah. Eventually. And I think that homeownership is because you start, you're like, it's, it, it becomes your baby. Right. And then you're like, well, and, and you start to make a lot of non-economic decisions. Like any renovation is usually a waste of money. And people will go through, jump through hoops to justify that the one that they did, like, oh, in my neighborhood, people love marble. Like, no, you're, you are not recouping the marble you're ruining that you it. spent. You're not recouping it. Like, you, it is so well documented that home improvements do not, and, and in fact, there's like a downside to home improvements huh. because if you improve your home too much, you steer from the comps in your neighborhood. So the comps pull you back in. Wow. So you can't even improve your home too much because then you're an outlier relative to the comps. So anyway, I, I could keep going. There's so many more, but. Well, this is great. Also, my wife is an interior designer and I understand <laughs> trust. I understand the ridiculous, ridiculousness of. Yeah. I, I'm grateful, you know, puts food on the table, but I look at her and I'm like, so this is a, a real problem that you're going to drive all the way over there and solve the remote for the drapes. It's not working fast enough. It's not as efficient. So you're going to drive over there or you're going to deal with it. Okay. That's really interesting. <laughs> but again, I, I go back to the eight sleep thing. Sure. It's, you know, I do think that you have to love where you live. Right. Let me rephrase. It is a significant contributor to your happiness if you love where you live. Yeah, your environment matters. And so your, your environment, it's very much, it's almost like an extension of your bed. So you, sometimes it, like a lot of the decisions are actually non-economic. So like hiring the interior, it, like putting marble, like, yes, if that makes you love where you live, but that, what, what happens is people then like, they're like, this is a good investment. It's like, it lives in this weird space of like, this is a good investment and this is just a purchase that makes me happy. And I think that that really fucks people up because then they start thinking that their one renovation is going to drive all this value and they do this weird self-justification and you end up spending a lot of money because you think you're invest, And then it, it can lead you, like this friend that I was texting with who found the $100,000, he's just like, I'm a prisoner he's a prisoner to a $5 million, $4 million house. Like, go figure. He's just like, I can't believe you rent. <laughs> he's not getting sympathy points sure. for that. I think people, they go into buying a home. They, they learn this stuff after they've bought it. 
For sure. Which is why I'm really grateful to have this kind of nitty gritty conversation with you because I have been, you know, it's, it's hard not to hear, like it's a contentious perspective, right? When people who have Mm -hmm. a lot of money and can afford to buy say, I'm choosing not to, Mm -hmm. it almost feels like, do you guys know like a trick that we don't, Mm. you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So I, I appreciate that you can kind of approach it on the one hand, like a very level-headed finance guy, like here's how these the math works out. Mm-hmm. But then the you're math's also good if you can stay. But <laughs> then you're very sympathetic to the fact that, like, but a lot of what drives our behavior is what's happening between the years or how we're feeling, and then we figure out ways to rationalize and justify it later. And that just yeah. I think is going to help. It's certainly going to help me. I hope it helps people who are listening. But it's certainly mm-hmm. going to help me at least understand. Okay, how can I put up guardrails, or when do I? you know, like really tap into the check-in with myself and try to be as self-aware as possible when there's such big stakes. Yeah, yeah. And the last one, again, just to go on, because this is a really powerful one, is that there's something, because it's really, like I I said, at the end of the day, it's all about, it's really about your psychology. It's not, it's like the economics are secondary and the psychology is first. And so the psychology that's really powerful, and this is one that I'm kind of wrestling with in my own life, is that buying a home forces you to kind of say, this is my community. In a way that renting, it doesn't have that that toothiness. Now, again, some people can simulate that feeling in their brains that like, no, I'm so invested in this community, in these neighbors, in whatever, even though I'm a renter. But again, most people are like, you know, I'm here for a couple of years and then I'm out. And and again, a, a, a deep human need is that sense of belonging, that sense of community. So I actually, I've never said this out loud because I just realized it, but the same way that buying a house kind of protects you from your worst investing instincts, I think buying a house also kind of forces you to have community in a way that the transience of renting doesn't. And I, I don't think people talk about that often, but there's something really nice to being like, I'm going to invest in this community because I have an economic stake in it. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to leave. Right. Whereas renters are like, I don't, you know, if this neighborhood goes to hell, like when my lease ends, I'm out. I'm just, I'm out, you know? And I think that that's something that, that, that shouldn't be underestimated. Again, deeply psychological. Huh. Yeah, that's a good point. These are all great points. Thank you for helping <laughs> me navigate this, you know? in my mind of what I, yeah. what I think is going on. The pleasure. And, and that's, I love this because it's, it's, it's an, it's a classic example where people can just talk about spreadsheets and numbers and they will completely miss the point. Like the juiciest part of what we described is are all these weird psychological things. They'll miss, no one's having that conversation or very few people and that's exciting. It's exciting that you and I can have that this conversation because I promise you, you and I read a lot of the literature on this topic, all sides, all different perspectives. Very few people are having this specific conversation on it. Yeah. Thank you for being a part of it. Okay. I've taken up way too much of your time, but I I, I have a few rapid fire questions here to yeah, close out the, the interview. So is there anything that you've purchased that maybe to the naked eye seems frivolous, but for you is money well spent? Oh, that's a good question. I would say it's a tie between two things. I would say 
Uh, I'll start with a very kind of superficial one, but I run a lot and I have a small head. And so a lot of hats don't fit me well because I have to make them really tight. And then the flap like slaps you in the face. And then it just kind of like, you just look like a bobblehead. And so I found these like really nice runner. They're almost like like those cyclers hats that are like, sure. like these short like bill. mini hats, mm-hmm. short bill. This. So I found these short bill running hats that are right up my color alley, my like my color scheme. The branding is like on point, even their Spotify playlist. I'm like, oh my God, you're like, you're in my head. So just, and they're like $50 hats. And so I run every day. And so I like to have a different one. And so I have like three of them now. So, so that would be one where it's, it's just like, I get such use out of it. And then the other that's probably a little bit more bougie or, or whatever is we have a cooling pad for our mattress, his and hers. And she sleeps cold. I sleep hot. And so we have different temperature settings on our bed and it's just pure bliss. Like my bed is just pure bliss. Is it the eight sleep? No, we were a little early to it. So it's the chili, chili pad. Okay. Yeah. Which got acquired by another company. We have the eight sleep and I feel like a ridiculous person when I tell people about it, but it's totally worth it. If you think of the total units of happiness divided by cost, it probably blows away any other purchase you've ever bought. I would agree. You sleep in it every single night. Yep. To the point where, I know I said rapid fire and here I am rambling. <laughs> to the point where I realize how fragile I am when I like sleep mm-hmm. in a hotel even. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm a little infant baby crier when mm-hmm. I'm not in a perfectly climate controlled bed, but yeah, I accept. <laughs> we accept, right? What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self? I mean, I would say that this is definitely kind of more in the world of high high finance, but there's good debt. Like debt, it, debt can be very good. And if you re- look at the ultra wealthy, they use debt like crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think like I had this like Asian immigrant mindset, like like never take on debt. And so obviously the best debt is, well, not these days, but would be like a fixed rate mortgage with a tax deductibility and, and all of that. But even now, because I have huge capital gains from investing for 28 years across like, like four bull markets. So I can't, I mean, it would be crazy. Uh, the tax bill to sell would be crazy. So I selectively use margin lending to, you know, either to be more aggressive, to buy more stocks or to fund, you know, like lower income seasons of my life. And, you know, it takes, it can get a little scary, right? (laughs) Like markets sell off and you have margin. But again, I think it goes back to that, like emotional clarity, mental clarity, and just like being able to sit with your fears. And, and so I, I, I wish I had started using debt, particularly, I mean, I'm, I'm not a homeowner. I I like to move around a lot. So that would not be a, a thing I did, but margin, margin debt. Okay. Did you have any financial superstitions growing up? I, I wouldn't say it's a superstition, but I, I definitely had, I forget the behavioral bias, which is like, you never, if a stock, you buy a stock and it goes down, you just feel so much better when it goes back to the level that you bought it. So it's kind of like, like loss aversion, so to speak, but it makes no sense because it doesn't, like economically, it, you, you, you have to think about the opportunity cost of the money, not just like, did it hit the same level, right? But I still find myself with some investments. I'm like, oh, I've made an investment. 
And then eight years later, I got back exactly what I put in. I'm like, oh, okay, phew, I didn't lose money. I'm like, you lost a lot of money. <laughs> like the opportunity cost of that eight years is very high. Right. So maybe not a superstition, but a little bit of a weird quirk. I like that. Okay, last one. Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at? Most of the private investments that I've made, and I haven't made that many, but most of them have gone to zero. So I'm a horrendous private markets investor. I'm a fantastic S&P 500 investor. So that would be probably one of them. And then the other was I speculated in comic books and when I was 14. And so I wouldn't even read the comics, but I'd, I'd try to make bets that like, oh, this one's going to be really good. And so a comic came out and I bought 16 versions, 16 copies of it. Like I spent all of my money and I was convinced that I was going to make bank. And this was a lot of money. It was probably like 40 bucks as a 14 year old in 1993. And I was the top of the market because there was like all these new comic book companies that come out. The market was totally saturated. It was Spawn for those geeks who are listening. Spawn one, I think, or, or like a reissue of Spawn. And uh, Image Comics went defunct. Uh, but I really believed that this new comic book was going to be in. So I went all in and then I lost like all my money. Do you still have the comic books? I still, I gave, a, my comic books were worthless. So I gave them all away. I did my magic card collection. Actually, this is my biggest financial mistake. My magic card collection, I sold in 1997 when I graduated high school and I made $7,000 as a high school kid, almost all profit. That collection today is worth a million dollars. Yeah, because collectibles, it, it was worth like, 20 grand for a while. And then collectibles have gone through the roof because of COVID and 0% interest rates and Jake Paul and all those dum-dums. And so, yeah, that, that's probably the biggest financial mistake I've made. And I got to say, it's the most unusual one I've heard so far. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you win the award. <laughs> yes. Okay, this has been a lovely walk amongst the flowers in terms of a you know, long-winded conversation, helping me sort out my own feelings about money. I appreciate you for being so honest and earnest and sharing your story. For all the folks who are just dying to get more K, where can they follow you along yes. online? Well, thank you again. It's like time spent with you is just a, a, a true, true gift. And we just scratched the surface. Listeners, if you're still with us, radreads.co is kind of the main hub. I'm a prolific emailer. So sign up for our email newsletter there. Twitter is probably my, if you just Google Kehi and then whatever social media, but Twitter is my most active. I'm then Instagram and then I'm working on YouTube. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kay. Thank you, Paco. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters, the theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. 
It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyagroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, an iHeartMedia production, and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions about money, suggestions, or you want to be a part of the show, Give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. That's it. We'll catch you here next week. In the meantime, take care. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.